Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Uh, we're here today with our guest, Dr. Pete Williams, uh, who's the, the uh, principal, or in, I think in U.S. terms, we would say the dean, yeah, uh, sure. or president, of a, a, a terrific biblical research facility in Cambridge, England, known as Tyndale House. Uh, it's a wonderful place, a conglomeration of scholars who are in various various parts of their research uh, that come together and have a, it's a community of scholars together. Uh, so, Pete, we're, we're delighted you could be with us. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time out uh, during this time. We'd like to talk a little bit about your your new book uh, entitled, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, it's a really important topic. So, first of all, tell our listeners a little bit about what Tyndale House is and how, how you came to be affiliated with it. Yeah, so Tyndale House in Cambridge uh, began during the Second World War and since then has really been the, at the centre of the resurgence of evangelical biblical scholarship. It's um, our premier centre for coming to research. We don't do degrees, uh, but we support people who do degrees and beyond. And what we're really doing is working at the doctoral level and above. So we're trying to raise up world experts who can serve the church wherever. We have about 50 people researching the Bible every day. Uh, in there and that, that's uh, there's no greater conglomeration of bible believing bible experts anywhere in the world so it's a, it's a, you'd say it's a conglomeration of, do, of doctoral students uh professors on sabbatical do you have people who live there you know, yeah, year yeah. round for, for longer stretches people can live there three four years uh, and people can come there for a day uh but we have yeah the biggest cluster of uh bible believing bible researchers there is anywhere and so after they're, after they're done with whatever they're doing at Tyndale House, then they go out? Yeah, so to, I mean, to, to t- typically it will be um, that people associated with us are producing, you know, far more than one book every 10 days. Um, it, so, you know, together mm-hmm. between everyone. So there's a lot of output uh, in scholarship and um, people can go to, you know, the four corners of the globe. So how, just, this is, this is not, not the time to be modest, uh, what would you say about the impact of Tyndale House on on biblical scholarship in in the UK and beyond? Well, I think it's been very large, but I also bear in mind that um, Christ taught us not to judge before the end. So Matthew 13 is very clear where the angels who would like to um, gather up the harvest prematurely are told not to. Paul specifically said he doesn't even judge the effectiveness of his own ministry. And I think that... God reserves the knowledge of what is most fruitful for himself. So he can tell a certain amount, by their fruits you shall know them. But um, trying uh, us trying to judge prematurely what's effective or not, uh, I think it is wrong. And uh, what we need to do is judge, are we doing what we're called to do by God? Um, God blesses, but for us to sort of compare ourselves with other organizations to say this one's more effective than that one, so I, I don't think that's at all appropriate. Okay, so it's uh, you would say it's, it's more about faithfulness, and we'll leave we leave the results at the end of the day to God. Yeah, I mean, we obviously you know can quantify impact in terms of hundreds of millions because most of the Bible translators who've either been involved in the ESV, the um, NIV, the New Living Translation, and so on, many of those have mm-hmm. spent time um, in, in the house. So, so in, when you just look at the print numbers, you can obviously mm-hmm. say there's been a big effect. Uh, the Japanese Bible translation, the Mongolian Bible translation, you, you can uh, list lots and lots of quantifiable impacts. But I think it's when you try and 
quantify them spiritually, uh, I think you're stepping over a line. Yeah. Well, I think I think our listeners, I think, will find it very encouraging that there is this conglomeration of of evangelical biblical scholars who care deeply about the biblical text and deeply about being faithful to Jesus, who are about their work and have a place to do that. Mm-hmm. So I commend you for that work. Um, now you've you've you have a PhD in Old Testament. That's right. Yeah, uh, and, but you've spent a lot of time as a New Testament lecturer, equal facility in both the biblical yeah, I, languages. I, 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 I do both. So my my undergraduate degree was Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So I did that was you know uh, all of those languages uh, to help you read the Bible and related mm-hmm. things. I've done early translations. I've uh, and I, I find that when I'm looking at how the text has been transmitted over time, that um, we want to check that in multiple languages, and so I use them all, uh, whether I'm looking at the Old okay. or New Testament. So what, what was the impetus behind this new book, uh, can, we, can We Trust the Gospels? Well, Can We Trust the Gospels is just a short book. I think it's something like 38,000 words, but I've been thinking about it for 22 years, and I've, in fact, spoken to hundreds of groups on the subject, and I've tried to refine uh, what I'm doing. And what I'm trying to do is f- fill a niche uh, for books that are... Um, small which can be given out to people who are asking that question are the gospels reliable and that includes people who have not read them or know nothing about the subject so one of the things I try and do in this book apart from be brief is to lead people from knowing nothing through a syllabus so that they can actually understand how we know the Gospels are reliable without appealing to authority as I do so and giving transparent references so that people can look up things if they want to. So I, I give references to specific manuscripts, specific libraries where people can check these things out. And uh, I don't think there's been a book trying to occupy that space uh, in recent years. So uh, I would hope it will be given out far and wide to people who are just asking that question. So what, you know, you've been at this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the primary objections that people have to the reliability, historical reliability of the Gospels? Well, I think when you look at objections, some of the objections are coming from ignorance where people haven't really looked in it, uh, the subject, and so they're assuming that everything was written much later and could have been uh, changed over time. Uh, it, it, people liken it to the telephone game and so on. And I think it's possible to falsify those ideas and show that the writers have to have some really close-up familiarity with the time and place they're writing about, and the stories have not been corrupt over time. So I think you can show that. Then there's an objection that um, the writings uh, can't be trusted because they're biased, uh, because they're written by Christians. And look, I compare the four Gospels with what was written about the most famous person in the world at the time, who was obviously the Roman emperor. And we've got more, uh, or at least as much, written about Jesus um, as we have about the Roman emperor, and arguably closer to the time uh, than with the Roman emperor. Overall, I think it stands up very well. People sometimes say, well, don't the Gospels contradict each other? In response to that, I say, if you look at John's Gospel, John actually deliberately sometimes contradicts itself. Um, that there are fascinating times when Jesus says, uh, I didn't come to judge the world. He also says, for judgment, I came into the world. Both are in John's Gospel. And what I think sometimes people do is they get, when it comes to biblical contradictions or alleged contradictions, they get into this sort of point scoring mode where the skeptic scores a point by pointing out a problem and the 
um, apologist tries to respond. But if we're dealing with Jesus, who was a great um, teacher and who also spoke in parables, which are effectively forms of riddles, why can't he speak in other forms of riddles? Why can't one saying actually be intentional with another saying deliberately because he intended it to? So one of the first things I want to do is just get people to be honest about things and stop the point scoring about, you know, Yabu, I can show you've got a point, I've got a point. Forget that. Let's look really honestly at these texts and ask the question, can we trust them? And I think there's lots of signs of trustworthiness in the text. They know the land, they know the where the land goes up and down, they know the travelling distances, they know what people are called, they know Judaism. And that's really striking because Christianity moved away from Judaism really quite fast, but the Gospels we find are incredibly Jewish in their flavour, even Luke, which is the least Jewish, uh, it has really deep knowledge of Judaism. And so that suggests these things are written at the earliest phase of Christianity, not written a long time after it had been spreading. So these are the sorts of reasons I'd, I'd put for okay. trusting. Let me, let me uh, bring this scenario to you. I had a conversation with a, a gentleman from uh, Eastern Europe mm -hmm. not too long ago who had converted to Christianity from Islam. He's now a doctoral student. Um, he's, a, he's, I believe he's at Oxford. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, and he's studying textual criticism. Yeah. In order to be an apologist mm -hmm. to Muslims. Yeah. And I think textual criticism, I think, has gotten a bad rap, you know, as just being this super technical area that mm -hmm. doesn't have much relevance to, to real life and the kinds of things that, that somebody like him would, would find important. But he said the first, the first thing that Muslims said to him after he converted to Christ, as he started defending his faith, is that the text of the Bible is so corrupt that it can't possibly be trusted. Yeah. So just just from from the point of view of establishing the reliability of the text itself, mm -hmm. how would you answer that that Muslim criticism? Yeah. As a, as a textual critic. Well, I, I have a chapter on that, and I think there are many angles uh, into it. One thing I would say is that you know the title of the book, "Can We Trust the Gospels?" is absolutely deliberate, um, and some people believe that the Christian needs to prove that there has been no change. And I think that's quite wrong, because imagine a scenario in which um, you had a photo of Moses coming down from the mountain with tablets from God. A skeptic could say, well, that doesn't prove he didn't falsify them before he came around the corner. In other words, you can never prove that something hasn't changed, but that's proving a negative. You don't have to do that. I think it's rather proving that there's no reason to think that it has changed. Uh, and in fact, you can also go further and say there are lots of reasons to think that there's been huge stability in the text. So one example I give is the opening 14 verses of John. Now, um, you go back to 1516 when those were printed by Erasmus in the first complete printing of the Greek New Testament. Look at every single letter in that. And it's no different in lettering for 14 verses, 812 letters from the edition made by the German Bible Society, or indeed the edition we've made at Tinder House uh, ourselves recently. And there were, even though nowadays we've got third century manuscripts of that passage, and Erasmus only had 12th century manuscripts of that passage. In other words, our manuscripts are nine centuries earlier than his, and we haven't had to change anything. And if I were really skeptical five centuries ago, I might have said to someone who only had a 12th century manuscript, 
how do you know they didn't get falsified in the 11th or the 10th or the 9th? And what's happened is even as the gap between the New Testament, the writing of the New Testament and the earliest manuscripts has got smaller and smaller, people's confidence in the New Testament has got less and less, all of which shows that the level of confidence people have bears no relationship to the amount of evidence there is. Um, it's rather ideologically driven, and I want to argue that just as reformers rationally trusted that they had a good text, so we can rationally trust that we have a good text now. Okay, so e- even though we still have maybe a, a couple of centuries gap to bridge, you know, all of the evidence in, in the in the in-between time the trajectory is set yeah, for and, trusting the reliability. And also, what we know is we can look at manuscripts, and there are some in, in the second century, and it's a bit like when you um, audit the finances of a company. You don't need to read every financial record. You just need to go in, look at particular records, and if you find no pattern of corruption, you say there doesn't seem to be a pattern of corruption. Now, what skeptics are tending to do is they're tending to agree with believers on the integrity of the text back till the earliest witnesses and then say and just before them something crazy went on in other words they're positing a radical discontinuity in what happened and i want to say the um believers attitude that says actually it's more natural to project right the way back is a simpler hypothesis it's a more natural thing can i coerce someone to believe that no i can't i'm not interested in doing that i'm interested in showing that it is fully rational. In fact, it's the best option to trust the Gospels. So it, it's not that um, God makes evidence so that he will coerce people uh, to believe right. if they don't want to. What, what about the notion that uh, the New Testament writers, the Gospel writers, were clearly biased? They were trying to make a, an explicitly theological point, and they arranged and left out materials to suit their point theologically. Doesn't, doesn't that speak to some sort of bias Uh, that the critics are suggesting. Well, look, there's nothing wrong with bias. Um, If someone accuses you of something you haven't done, uh, you certainly are very motivated to prove your own innocence and do all that. You've you've got an agenda. Um, Often you will find that people have um, biases uh, towards particular things. But would we discount um, all the records about golf because they're written by golf enthusiasts? Why should we discount the records about jesus because they're written by jesus enthusiasts there's no reason to um and the other thing is when you look at these and you say well they're biased but do you know other records like the gospels where the prime movers in christianity come out so bad um the disciples all abandoned jesus the lead disciple peter uh, abandoned jesus you know it just doesn't make any sense this this it's it would be a very strange form of double bluff bias and Again, I'm not saying I can prove things. I can. I would argue consistently that trusting the Gospels tends to be the simplest explanation, the simplest hypothesis. It's the one that explains the most with the least second amount of having to um, add further hypotheses. It's, it's just a very uh, simple, straightforward way of, of dealing with the data, and okay. it explains so much. Which, which makes it, I think, much much more plausible <laughs> than some of the objections. So uh, does, what, what about the context in which the the apostles and the, the gospel writers wrote down the history of the life of Jesus. I mean, it was a context of persecution uh, where it seems to me they had they had ample opportunity. If they if they were fabricating some of this, they had ample opportunity to revisit the, the historical facts that they were writing down. How does the context of pers- the 
persecution that the church endured from the very start, how does that factor into the plausibility of the gospel records? Well, I think it's clearly hard to be a, a, a Christian uh, in many ways. Um, it puts you on the edge of Jerusalem Judaism and as you spread out you don't have a position in the Roman Empire now it's not that there's constant persecution all the time um, but I do think that obviously people had leisure enough to write sometimes um, but the idea that people are getting into writing about Jesus because there's uh, some material reward for them um, you know that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, I think clearly people uh, believe in this deeply and that's why they write it up um, the context, we can say um, that whether or not the gospel writers wrote it in the land of Israel or elsewhere, they clearly knew the land well. They knew the, where it goes up and down. They, they know uh, about the water bodies. They, they know what it looks like to look f to, f to the other side of the lake. And these are non-trivial things. If you're going to research them, let's say you're living in Rome or in Turkey or something like this, and you want to write something reliable about little villages in Palestine. It's, it's incredibly tough to do that. You can't look up Strabo, Ptolemy comes along a bit later, you, got, you can't look up Pliny the Elder and get enough information to be able to write the Gospels. So they clearly don't get these from any literary sources, all this knowledge of, of towns and places. Um, the best way to explain it is that they got it because they either had been in the land or they had really extensive conversations with people who had been there. Okay, so give, give us a, a couple of examples of things that the New Testament, the, the gospel writers were obviously very familiar with that might, you know, the average reader of the gospels today, you know, might not recognize. So, for instance, in, in Matthew and Mark, um, Jesus feasts with many tax collectors, uh, and he does it in Capernaum. So um, that's an interesting thing, and it's only in Matthew and Mark, and it's not in Luke and John. But of course, Capernaum is on a border. Um, so if you're coming either over the lake, the Sea of Galilee, uh, you know, from the Decapolis as a border, if you're, if you're uh, uh, coming over from um, the, the Golan as a border, that's where you need to put tax collectors. They're, they're collecting toll. In Luke, Jesus has uh, a meal with Zacchaeus in Jericho and Zacchaeus is described as a chief tax collector in other words there's more tax collectors in his area now Jericho's a long way um, down from uh, Capernaum but it's also on a border it's also um, you know just across the uh, river um, you'll be going over to the Perea the Transjordan uh, there and it's a great place to have toll so in other words different gospels independently are putting toll collectors exactly where you would need to have toll collectors. These sort of details are not made up, they're just reported. And then there are many things like that where they simply casually report these details as they're going through a story and you can see they clearly know what it's like to be on the ground. Now, And those are things that would be easily caught by somebody who was, who was, who was just as familiar yeah. with the land if, if those were incorrect. Yeah, and, and also if someone was well away from the land and they were just making up stories, they've got no internet to consult. These things are non-trivial. No, no, um, no Google Maps to... No, and um, even the names they give to people. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of Jews in Rome at the time. The main um, characteristic of Jewish names in Rome is that they're either in Latin or in Greek. 
you know, whereas we can see the Gospels have a different palette of names for the Jews, which fit Jewish names for Palestine, not Jewish names for Turkey, not Jewish names for Egypt. They fit that land. Exactly that's what we'd expect. Okay. So let's, let's summarize some of this evidence. Um, if, so, if somebody asks, or, or they say complete this sentence, uh, I trust the Gospels as a historical record because... How would you finish that sentence? Well, I, w- I want to say there are many reasons you can come to trust okay, or the because Gospels. Because one, two, three, four. Um, um, look, I, I think it could be rational to trust the Gospels because your mother told you they're trustworthy and your mother's incredibly trustworthy. Um, now, that's not a historical reason to trust the Gospels, but let's remember that human knowledge is basically social. Um, you know, we all learn from each other. Even science is just built up on trusting other scientists. Most scientists haven't done a fraction of all the experiments for all the things they believe. So in other words, uh, there's nothing wrong with getting belief from reliable uh, people you found to be reliable. But obviously I can go into historical reasons. This is all about historical reasons. But you, you could even go further than the historical reasons in this book. And you could say, look, we have the whole message about Jesus that makes sense of life. We have, I mean, who would make up Jesus? You have the genius of his parables. And for instance, his saying that um, uh, of, of the golden rule, do unto others what you'd have them do to you, which is a clearer uh, enunciation of an ethic to live by than anyone's come up to uh, with uh, up to that point. Now, either Jesus said that or he had brilliant disciples who came up with brilliant ideas and then credited him with it. Now, going down the scenario that he has brilliant disciples who come up with great stories like parables, great teachings like the golden rule, and then credit him with, is te- you will end up positing multiple geniuses. <laughs> Whereas if you just say he came up with them, you only have to posit one genius. So it's a simpler mm-hmm. hypothesis. So all of these things um, start cohering, they start making sense. Um, I think we're just surrounded by mountains of evidence for why to trust the Gospels. I've, I've just got a very brief book here, um, and it's just a first taste. You know, I hope people will go on from this to read some of the longer books by uh, Craig Blomberg and uh, Brant Pitray and others who um, uh, go into more detail on these issues. Let me ask one, one other question just on the reliability of the Gospel writers. Uh, you know, they didn't have cameras, audio tape. Uh, digital recordings, anything like that. They trusted their memory mm-hmm. for a lot of this. We don't live in a memory culture, so for us, the idea that you know we could we could have a fairly exact recollection of something that took place you know months ago, uh, or that we could memorize large blocks of somebody's teaching or saying those. We don't have categories for that today. Mm-hmm. I take it that was much more common in the first century in. There's no, there doesn't sound, there's, any, there's no reason to mistrust the memory of the of the disciples. You know, it's sort of very different than how we would tend to trust somebody's memory today. I think we need to start with what a disciple is. Disciple is simply the word to mean student of a rabbi. Jesus is described as a teacher and a rabbi throughout the Gospels. Uh, so. Here we have a group of 12 people whose main job it is to learn everything he says. That's what they do um, all the time. And you can see these discussions in the Gospels where they're discussing something he's just said as they're walking along. 
This is what they're supposed to do. So the idea that it all simply gets lost doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, you'd have they'd have to be monumentally incompetent as students. So uh, and you know, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, "Go and make disciples, i.e., students of all the world." In other words, the, there's a huge emphasis on teaching. Jesus goes round constantly teaching. So the idea that none of this got passed on doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, tell tell our listeners a little bit about how this research into the reliability of the gospels has impacted you spiritually. I think for me, one of the really spiritually pleasurable things about this is the way the book came together without having to be forced. As I investigated the best ways to put arguments for the reliability of the New Testament, I wasn't having to shoehorn arguments, twist them around, find a way of making it plausible. Actually, it was just, for me, a wonderful testimony to God's goodness that again and again I was, I was coming to the simplest explanation for all of the data will be trusting and so I would just testify that trusting God is a very rational thing to do um, humans don't have an option of not trusting anyone not trusting anyone you would die very soon because you wouldn't trust your food suppliers or anything like that so we're, we're, we're social creatures and we trust and when um, the New Testament invites us to trust um, Christ and trust God as a character we are already equipped to judge between trustworthy and untrustworthy characters. We do that all the time. So we're not being asked to do something we've never mm-hmm. been trained for before. Actually, it's something we know about, and therefore I think something that we are very responsible to do, that we have to respond and say, yes, this character, Jesus, is trustworthy. Okay. Um, now, just one final question. Um, you know, we, we live in a culture today that's largely what I would call a post-truth culture where you know um the the value say the value of historical evidences like this is sometimes called into question Mm -hmm. Uh, are you finding that uh the people you talk to about the reliability of the gospels that the the question the question matters to them uh and so i guess i'm sort of asking what's what's the apologetic value that you found from this so i don't think it matters to everyone i think some people are much more, if I can say, existentially um, built where they're concerned about the practicalities for them. But people are not relativistic about their paychecks. Uh, and so this idea that people can be completely relativistic, you know, it, it doesn't work. Um, and I, I think people realise that testimony is a very, very important thing when you're talking about um, sexual harassment cases and these sort of things. Testimony becomes absolutely vital the question is this person telling me the truth um trusting people at work are they telling me the truth about what the plans are whether my job's secured this this is absolutely vital now people may or may not be interested in in god i mean some people are more interested in themselves than in god um my argument would be we should all be interested in this um also there are some types of people who will accept Christianity based on the message, based on um, the experience, uh, the transformation of God in the life. But there will be some people who really do need to work through specific problems before they can. They need to know it's true truth, it's about the real world, that it's rationally coherent. Um, and, and so this is a book for those sort of people. It's also a book for um, Christians who just want to be more confident in their faith. It's also a book for non-Christians, I hope, and can be used widely in discussing with people. Well, that, that makes sense that there's such an emphasis on eyewitness testimony 
in the Gospels because of that trustworthiness. Well, I, Pete, I, we so appreciate your work on this. It's, it's a major contribution to the plausibility structure uh, that people need for their for their for their heart to be able to rejoice in what their mind also finds plausible and uh, compelling. So, the book is "Can You Trust the Gospels?" Dr. Pete Williams. Uh, Principal of Tyndale House at Cambridge. Thanks so much for being with us. Great. Really good stuff. So thanks. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Peter Williams, to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Williams, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.